Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Let's just do a quick sound check, can anybody hear me yet? Okay. Welcome, and uh, we're doing another monthly live stream here at SFIA, and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this process, we'll be taking questions pretty much the whole time, but while those get queued up, we do have a couple of announcements for today. Uh, first, we will be doing a second session afterwards in our Discord server right after this with live voice chat, so if you don't get a question today, you can go over there and wing one out. And we hit the break about 30 minutes in, Sindri will walk you through how we will go about doing that if you're not familiar with Discord. Second, we do have a website up now, the new and improved one. We've been to upgrades for quite a while, that is IsaacArthur.net. And you can check that out during the break as we'll start up at 6.30, it's 5 o'clock right now, uh, and the Discord session after this, and we'll probably finish up here about 6 o'clock. So. In the break, you can head over there and take a peek, and we'll give you some instructions about that when we get started. So, for those of you who are not uh, keeping track of the schedule while we wait for questions to come in, um, we do have next week, uh, Secret Aliens is our episode to finish out February, and then we'll be going in with Mulch for Hitchhiking the Galaxy, which is pretty obviously a tribute to Douglas Adams, though that will be our entire month, as you really can't just do one book for him. So, all right. <clears throat> So do we have any questions up yet? By the way, for anyone who's not familiar with this, we actually have some volunteers who moderate on the side and grab questions out of the feed because I can't really monitor both at the same time. So, so you know, I do actually read all the questions and comments after the live stream, but while we're going through this, they snatch out questions as we go, post them over to me on our Discord server actually, and I just read those off as we go. <clears throat> First question, did you lose like 50 pounds? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess I have actually lost a fair amount of weight since we got started with the channel. It's about 80 actually, but uh, still about 40 more to go to be honest. Uh, next question. It's always a bit slow to get started here. Sorry about that. If I can bring up the question. Aha, there we go. Can you comment on the recent study showing that the universe is likely to end in a big rip? No black hole farming, worst news ever. That is one of the cosmologies that we might actually have uh, as a fate of the universe. There are several that have been kicked around over the years, and of course we can't say right now which of these is true. Um, for the longest time we had the steady state universe, which was the notion that the universe just refreshed itself over and over again. Then we found out about the expansion, uh, the Hubble expansion, we started kicking around the idea that it would just spread out and uh, might eventually contract under gravity and that would be called the Big Crunch. There's a version of that where it would then explode again as another Big Bang, uh, not that there's really much explosion going on, and that's this cyclical universe approach. Then we have the Heat Death, which is the main, main one for right now, which is that the universe will just spread out forever and ever, get thinner and thinner, and entropy will eventually rule over everything, reducing to a very cold and uh, lonely place. Then we have the Big Rip. This one is newer. With dark energy coming into play, there's the possibility that this accelerating expansion, which is what appears to be going on, will just keep speeding up. And if it keeps speeding up enough, you would eventually get a dark energy force that wasn't just enough to pull galaxies apart, but could pull solar systems apart, and then planets apart uh, from the, if they were solar systems. 
and then would potentially actually get to the point where it could rip apart atoms, where it would overcome the electromagnetic force, which is, you know, about 40 orders of magnitude stronger than gravity, and then might actually pull apart atoms too. Uh, that gets to be a little bit tricky with the, uh, with the nuclear force though, because when you rip two quarks apart, you end up with two more pairs of quarks. So something like that could conceivably result in a new Big Bang simultaneously everywhere in the universe, or it could just be that everything gets ripped apart into the universe. The big difference here though is that uh, while they throw the number 20 billion around a lot for the Big Rip, that's actually just a rounded number they put into the equation. Yeah, I think it was negative 1.5 for the, uh, I can't remember if it's an omega or an italicized W, the factor there though. Um, they just plugged in an even number there that was in a zone they were curious about and that came out to 20 billion years. So there's no data for it to be negative 1.5. Um, and any value in there, the closer it is to 1, uh, negative 1, the uh, longer the universe would live. So if it was like negative, no, well, if it's negative 1 on the dot, you would actually have a frozen universe at some point in time where it would just heat death. Anything lower than that is going to produce for you, assuming I'm remembering my numbers right, a eventual big rip. And um, that could be 20 million years from now, like if the factor was 1.5, uh, or it could be sooner or a lot longer away. So the 20 billion number you hear about this is, is just arbitrary um, for the mathematical model. All right, next question. Uh, actually, we quite a few while I was talking about that. One second. What effect would seed factories have on socioeconomic systems of Earth? Um, I'm assuming by seed factories you would mean probably self-replicating ones. Uh, we have a pretty big effect, you know, right now we have these very complex supply chains. In fact, that's something we'll be discussing with the uh, giant robots and uh, power suits episode in early April. Um, a lot of our gear, a lot of our equipment is kind of based and limited off of the sheer amount of effort that goes into making them. So you have an opportunity cost, even when you want to make something really cool and can do it, you're often going to do something a lot sim simpler. Right? But when that opportunity cost that's lost by making something more complex is very minimal uh, because it's basically just program it in and the machines do all the work, then you can actually start getting a lot of the big omega structures or colony systems that we often talk about here. And there does tend to be an implicit assumption that's where the change was at, where the majority of the effort is not manufacturing in terms of human effort, but rather on the design side. Peter asks, what would you suggest regarding promoting basic O'Neill cylinders as a better alternative to Pepsi can space stations? Um, <clears throat> fundamentally, an O'Neill cylinder is still one of those big soda can space stations. Uh, I would say the idea that you want to do a really small one with this is all dependent on how big we're talking about small being. Until you're up to about 100 meters or so in a radius for these things, it's not terribly comfortable to live inside as you'd have kind of a spin nausea effect that you might get over just naturally after a couple of days or you might need to take some sort of motion sickness pill for. Um, where exactly that radius is hard to say, but when you say once you get to be about half a kilometer in diameter, that should be gone. There should be no problems at all. That's a pretty big space station though, uh, even if it's basically a wheel rather than a can, and since the interior would be mostly air, it probably doesn't matter if it is a wheel or a can. Um, in terms of mass to construct the thing. So I don't think it would be all that hard to talk people into building something that big if there was a demand for it, but that's not your first step. Your first step is to build one as small as you can that will actually let you simulate something like motion or lunar gravity to get a long-term effect uh, in terms of health. 
and probably Martian gravity because that's harder to do than lunar gravity, but the moon is right there, so we can get people back and forth there in a couple of days and we can talk to them instantly, so or with a two second time lag at least. So we probably don't need to simulate lunar gravity, we could just put people there and bring them back if there was a problem. Mars is another story, you need to simulate that before you send people off. Uh, I mean, we could send people obviously and just find out the hard way, but you know, that's a multi-year journey at low gravity on the surface of Mars, so there's bad health effects on that, you've got a lot of dead heroes, not good for a space program, you know, and it's bad science, bad process to just send people out like that. Uh, next question. Christopher asks, will nuclear fusion always be 20 years away? You know, this comes up a lot because it probably is about 20 or 30 years away right now. And I'll go ahead and say that right now is a fixed number. Uh, somewhere in the next few decades, we should probably have a, a working reactor, maybe not a commercial one. Um, this kind of comes back to General Atomics discussing fusion back in the 50s. Um, when we found out how to do fission, how to do basic fission, what fission was, we developed a bomb and a, you know, a reactor inside a generation of them. So when we had the H-bomb working and a basic concept of how fusion works, a lot of the companies that were doing that, like General Atomics, had said, you know, this is what we're going to have in 20 years. It seemed pretty reasonable. A lot of our discoveries like flight for the Wright brothers only a, a generation or so after the Wright brothers that we started having commercial travel on airplanes. So there is a habit of saying that. And uh, that wasn't a bad guess on their part, but after that we just kind of had this long sequence of people saying it was going to be another generation or two away when that didn't quite happen. Uh, so this idea that's always been 20 years away, that's actually a fairly new thing just from the repetition of it. We've only been a few generations since we discovered it. We were hoping to have it faster, didn't quite work out that way, but this defeatist it's always going to be 20 years thing is just woo. Uh, Rage Brew asks, at our current technological level, what do you believe the most plausible method of immortality is? Um, hmm. I always like to discuss the option of using nanotechnology to repair cells and DNA because it will absolutely work if you have those machines. Uh, once you can get in there and actually repair things, much like repairing a house, you know that's going to work. If those get invented in the next 20 or 30 years, then that's how it would happen. If we don't find a better method and it takes us a century or two to get to those robots, then that's how it will happen still, just much longer away. However, for the most part, aging is just various degenerative processes that are very separate from each other, and a lot of them are fixable by themselves, like cancer. That really is part of what we mean by aging. Um, the mitochondrial DNA breaking down from exposure, that's something that could be fixed with a, you know, a retrovirus potentially. So these are individually fixable issues that might be much better fixed through classic medicine and biology as we get better with that, but the nanotechnology op option is always on the radar if those don't turn out to be viable. And of course it's possible that we couldn't make really tiny machines that could do this, except that we already have tiny machines in nature that can do this stuff, they just don't do it because they're not programmed to do so and they don't know to do so. So we can always say with honestly total confidence that there will be a day when we can make machines small enough to work on cells um, and to be able to do repairs. That might be quite a long time off, it might be you know, 10 years from now, we just don't know. When someone makes one of these machines that would be the, you know, the avalanche point to when that should happen. Uh, Olympus asks, if the technology ever became available, would you upload your brain? Um, I would copy my brain probably if it was a relatively simple and uh, process that others have been through. I have no real interest in uploading my brain to transfer my life to a computer per se, 
it would be better than dying or being erased. As far as I would be concerned, though, if, and, and this is one of those things you really can't give a definitive answer to, it's not for the realm of science, more philosophy. Um, if I upload my brain, there's a copy of me. Shooting me in the head does not mean that that is the original now. Uh, it's not really a fake, it's just a copy. I'm still here. If I die the next day, um, I'm dead. My copy lives on, and my copy, being more or less me, can go ahead and you know make sure my friends are taken care of, attend their weddings or funerals too. It can make sure the videos keep coming out. There is an Isaac still behind. It just doesn't happen to be me specifically. And so for that reason, I'm not really all that anxious to get into mind uploading. Uh, but I certainly would get a copy of my brain made if that was a relatively simplistic and cheap process because I would like to make sure something of me remained to take care of things afterwards. Uh, <clears throat> Timothy White asks, do you foresee interplanetary laser highways or are lasers more useful for interstellar travel? They're very useful for interstellar travel. I'm still not certain about their application for interplanetary travel just because the speeds involved for interplanetary travel, if you have a working fusion drive or, or even are comfortable using uh, fission sources, don't really necessitate using that. And whenever you're using a system like that, you are kind of um, cutting down on on, on how, uh, how self-dependent you are. You've got something else that has to push you. You've also got very large lasers lying around that people might be uncomfortable with being moved back and forth around the solar system. What you might end up with, though, is ships that have their own drives that could get them up or down from speeds, um, and then they were supplemented by this, kind of like um, you know those little uh, conveyor belts they have in a lot of larger facilities like airports, so you can walk along next to it, or you can get up on that and walk to or stand still. Most of us get on those and walk. Uh, many of us skip around them and just walk, others just stand on those. So you might have lasers going between major ports of call that you could jump onto for an extra speed boost or to save you time and money. But I don't think that would be the primary way people got around. All right. Tau said he asks, is it possible to have underground biosphere on Earth like in the Underdog from Forgotten Realm setting in Dungeons and Dragons? I think we just did an episode on that, the uh, Subterranean Civilizations episode. Um, it wouldn't be quite like those. Uh, I don't know how many of you are actually familiar with underdog settings from places like Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk, but uh, generally speaking, uh, you couldn't actually have a really vibrant biosphere underground uh, unless you're supplying a lot of energy to it. But you can have one. We already do. A lot of those caves are amazing places and they do have life inside them, but it does tend to be a, uh, a debris-based life, uh, same as with the deep ocean. And you do also have problems of uh, you know what's happening if you live 10 kilometers underground, the air pressure is going to be very high. So see the Subterranean Civilizations episode for more details on that, but I think that we will probably have something like that set up um, in the future to some degree at least. Um, Winston Ashley asks, do you think that capitalism will have a place in space? If not, what economic system do you think will prevail? Um, it's kind of my stated opinion that regardless of whatever my own views are on this, that you can pretty much make any economic system semi-viable uh, in a post-scarcity civilization just because you don't have to be hyper-efficient to make something like that work. Um, as to whether or not capitalism would have a role in space in the future, I should think so. It's, it, it's one of the major ways we drive it now. But during the space race, you know, people say it has to be a, a capitalist or a communist future um, in, you know, in space. The space race was between a democratic capitalist nation and an oligarchic uh, communist nation, and they both 
managed to develop space travel. So it doesn't really work as an exclusivity example because it clearly did work for both of those groups. They both made major advances into space travel. And uh, I would not see any particular reason why that would be limited to one socioeconomic system. Uh, which one we'll go with, I don't know. And which one's better, I don't know, or at least I'm not going to express an opinion on. Uh, Gary Lane asks, Isaac, love your channel. Do you think robot replicators should all be identical for simple replication, or should there be a different model specializing in different things? Thank you, Gary. Um, the idea of a universal assembler is probably a little bit simplistic. You, you don't see that inside us. We see very specialized small machines doing the work. And I think that you would almost always go the specialization route when you have a complex system that you're working on. Um, there's a lot of variables involved in anything that's complicated where you're just going to be better off specializing. So I think that you would be more likely to have an entire um, ecosystem of nanorobots uh, possibly with larger scale controllers that gave them their orders, but you know, I just don't see much of a reason to make it uniform. You know, it's it's not an ant colony, so um, and that's probably not the best model to be using for these kind of things. It can work that way, of course, but I think you would specialize with many different breeds and and types of these machines. Um, although I think you might be careful not to let them evolve on their own much. <laughs> that's how you get gray goo. Uh, Derek. Asks question. No, sorry, Michael Nelson asks estimate. How long until significant programs of asteroid habitat building projects occur? Um, twenty years. It's always such a, a number that people like to throw out there. Something it's a generation away. What we mean is when we say things like that, it doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen in twenty years. It means that we can't see it happening in the next decade or so, but we can see a pathway to it happening not long after that. We could launch a mission to an asteroid right now and mine it. We do have the technology for this. And if we knew there was a bunch of gold there, we could pick it up and bring it home. Um, that's a really risky venture when it's still, you know, we're basically lacking any sort of infrastructure in space right now. I don't want people sailing off hundreds of millions of miles from Earth on uh, manned missions to go grab resources until I'm sure we have a good chance of helping them if something goes wrong. Uh, if they want to risk the endeavor on their own, that's fine, but that would be a strictly private venture at that point in time. And I would think that would tend to lag behind anything that would require basically the entire resource of a country to put together. So at least 20 years before anyone's really mining asteroids. And uh, I would usually just say another generation after that before you had real habitats on the economy, possibly longer. But we do have the analogy for um, you know San Francisco, 1849, the gold rush. That's a very appropriate one for asteroids. Um, difference being they are... A person could theoretically walk or sail a relatively cheap ship uh, with a small resource behind it to that location. Um, quite a long trip around the continents at that time, of course. But uh, it's a little bit harder to do this. I don't know if we could just assume there would be a rush that would take place in a couple of years, maybe further down the road, but not yet. Um, Vinny asks, uh, favorite Sagan Feynman book? Um, three books. Uh, the lectures on physics by Feynman, I would say, was probably my favorite because it was my graduation gift uh, from my department. Uh, it was uh, when I was graduating with my with my undergrad degree. They I, I came in top of the class, and they always give a, a something some kind of gift. And mine was the Feynman lectures. And he's actually uh, people kind of wonder who your main inspirations are, role models. Uh, Richard Feynman and Ben Franklin are my two big ones. I probably should be Asimov or Einstein or Newton because they're my namesakes, but. Feynman and, and Franklin. Um, 
Vane Pyogenas with SpaceX almost kind of moving towards the future of new combinations of chemical chemical proportion, and he plans to take a more intense look at the pros and cons of different chemical proportion combinations. I don't think that we're ever going to see anything that really outperforms hydrogen, and, and the reason why we don't use hydrogen exclusively right now with proportion, although there is a difference between taking off at ground level, at sea level, and walking in the upper atmosphere or space. A hydrogen pretty much always is going to win that, and it's more of a storage and um, and motion issue. There's difficulties moving hydrogen around, but I, I would tend to think that we would, for chemical fuels, kind of converge towards using hydrogen um, as we get better with containing and transporting and utilizing that. So there could be other options that we might look at them, but uh, I just tend to think it's going to be hydrogen, hopefully metallic hydrogen, um, but probably hydrogen. Um, <clears throat> Rob would ask, what is your favorite alternative to dark matter? Uh, I think it would be more like what would be my favorite version of dark matter. Uh, I tend to subscribe to the WIMPs, uh, that it's weakly interacting massive particles, something like a neutrino but uh, bigger. As to alternatives for that, I don't really have one. There's, there's nothing in the evidence right now that, that would support a specific alternative to dark matter. Um, micro black holes would, be, for instance, be still a type of dark matter, and we can say, like, what sort of level of energy they would tend to have. The problem is that unless they were created at a very discrete mass, because black holes have a lifetime that is uh, very correlated to their mass. Um, when a black hole dies, assuming Hawking's radi Hawking radiation is correct, it should give off an awful lot of energy that we should be able to see. So there should be, if they were randomly distributed in mass at the creation of the universe, and this is the notion of primordial black holes, ones far more uh, less massive than what we see formed by stars dying. Um, if there was a whole bunch of black holes created at the beginning of the universe of various masses, um, unless those were at very discrete mass levels, you know, if they were evenly spread as a war, those should be expiring all the time and we'd see the background, background radiation from that um, should be fairly detectable. So, and this is the case with a lot of these dark matter ideas, many of them are kind of ruled out by there just not really being much evidence to support the concept. But alternatives to dark matter entirely, like um, modified Newtonian dynamic uh, gravity, right? Uh, modified Newtonian dynamics for gravity, that it gets weaker at the intergalactic level. Um, these, you know, that that one, for instance, was kind of struck down by the bullet cluster uh, back in two thousand six, and that's the case for a lot of these alternatives to dark matter too. With they, they're interesting ideas, but they have to be testable and falsifiable. And while dark matter hasn't been falsified yet, it is falsifiable. We've discussed ways that we could potentially find this stuff and test it. So many of the alternative theories don't even have that going for them, and they are kind of cherry picking or fitting to the data, which is not always sometimes a necessary approach, but not a good way to do science if you can avoid it. Um, Tucker asks, what kind of organization do you believe will construct the first interstellar colonization vessel? I would tend to assume something that was the equivalent of a nation um, in terms of resources, obviously, because that's a pretty big project, especially considering the preferred way to do that would be something like a laser sail to at least get it up to speed. Uh, you might slow it down with nukes, but you might as well push it out of the system that way. Um, but it's kind of hard to say. I, it's got to be a big group. That's not really something you're going to privately fund first. But... Uh, it could be, you know, a group of nations, a very large corporation that specialized in it, or an individual country. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge, huge expenditure. Uh, next question: What is your opinion on the Gateway Foundation's plan for a large spinning station? Well, I'm, I remain fond of it. I don't know when something like that could actually be put out practically. Um, it's quite an endeavor, and you need a solid business model for attempting that if you want to do it privately. 
but I'm glad to see people actually just walking at it. You know, we've worked with them in the past, and I really like their basic concept. It's practicality economically is something else somebody else would have to discuss. I'm not an economist, um, but I'd like the idea. Uh, Nasmoth asks, do you reckon our generations will live long enough until some form of function? Do you, where's that? Do you think do you think our generation will live long enough until someone forms functional immortality? Um, to say, all those of us alive right now, could we potentially, you know, live uh forever or a very extended period of time? Of course you can never really have immortality. Um I do think it's on the table. Whether or not it will happen, I usually rate it as less likely than not for people my age, just because I don't like to get my spirits up for something like that. We'll know something like that's coming before it actually happens. The I was joking in our April episode when I wrote that a couple weeks ago. Um, the first immortals are likely to be lab rats, you know, so and our pets might get it before we do, which would certainly be welcome as you know, pets tend not to live as long as we do. Um I I think it's whether or not I say it's less likely or not or not, I do think it's a very, you know, this is not an outside probability. This is one of those things where it's quite probable that we might get to have very extended lives, those of us in my age range, which is uh 38. Um, yeah, we'll let's go with 38 for today. Um, but I, I don't like to encourage people to bet on that. I just don't think it's an outside probability. It's not long odds. Um, Zaxis asks about fusion. Could you... So we'll come back to that one if I can read it better. Um, Aimly asks, do you go to any conventions? I do not. Um, I might down the road. I have gone to them just as an observer in the past, but I... There aren't very many good ones in Ohio that I'm familiar with, and I really don't really like going out someplace like uh, San Diego for Comic-Con. I, 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 it sounds like a fun event, but I don't like crowds that much, so which might be uh, something I'd change my mind about later on. I think the closest I'll be doing that is I'm going to be giving a public talk at uh, the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh in June, I think. I'll update on details for that, and that sounds like it'll be fun to do, so... We'll give this kind of my trial run for public uh, appearances. Um, uh, question from What's your thoughts on de extinction bringing extinct animals back? We do actually have an episode on that. Um, I think that was what the top of last year or yeah, early January, February of 2018. We did an episode, I think, titled De Extinction or something close to that. To bring any animal back has got to be one of those examples where you're deciding how accurately do you want to bring it back. And we're talking about something that's so extinct we don't even have DNA for it. Um, and in a lot of those cases, you're not going to be able to get DNA. There's no DNA left over for dinosaurs. You might be able to backtrack and make some guesses about how that would work, but that's probably about the extent of what we could do. Um, but a close approximation that might work for our purposes, especially because when you're talking about a species in the fossil record, usually we have one or two examples of an actual species at best. We're talking about a very broad range of, of timelines. You might find a dozen fossils or something over 10 million years. That's uh, that's leaves a lot of variables in terms of evolution and change anyway. Uh, last question before we go to the break. Do you think all life in the universe has DNA? And if so, would all life across the cosmos share an ancestral origin? That's kind of a biochemistry question. We'd have to model whether or not you could do alternatives to DNA from amino acid chains. And there's a lot of amino acids. We use about 20, uh, but we only use four in DNA. And there's a lot more than 20. Um, and that's assuming you even need to use amino acids for your data storage for a self-replicating machine uh, like life. 
But RNA is an example of something that is not DNA. So that kind of proves that there is at least some room for uh, for things other than DNA. I would tend to assume amino acid constructs like that would be the norm, though. All right, we're going to go to break real quick for a couple of minutes. And uh, when we come back, we'll cover more of your questions. Hi there. I'm Sindri, Managing Director at SFIA. Thank you again for joining us in tonight's live stream. While we're on break, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about our Discord server, where we'll be continuing tonight's conversation with Isaac after we finish here. If there's something else you'd like to discuss with Isaac or the community, or if you have a suggestion for future content that you'd like to see on the channel, we'd love to hear from you. To get involved, simply click the link in the description of this video and follow the instructions in the entry point channel. If you'd like to jump to the voice channel, you'll have to enable push to talk. Simply go into your settings by clicking the gear-shaped icon in the lower left portion of your Discord client. From there, click on voice and video and select the option for push to talk. You'll have to assign a key in the shortcut box below, then click outside the box to save your choice. To speak, you'll have to press and hold this button. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. Enjoy the rest of the live stream and have a great evening. Okay, and we're back. Uh, thank you, Colonel Graf and MJ. Um, before I forget, you guys would have just seen the intermission with Sindri on there. There are an awful lot of folks who help make this channel you know, what it is today, which is a lot better than when it was a solo process, I have to say. At least in my opinion, things have gotten a lot better since our early days. And I do want to thank all those folks, and I'm hoping for those of them who are not camera shy or shy of exposure that we'll have a chance to feature more of those in episodes and breaks as we go on. But this is no longer really science and future with Isaac Arthur. There's a lot of folks involved in it, and uh, I really can't thank them enough for their time. Uh, and for those of you who are supporting us on Patreon or with the Super Chat today, thank you so much. You'll make the channel possible. So, Going back to those questions, MJ asks, will you make a vid on CRISPR or designer babies? Yes, we will, but not for a little while. Um, we do actually have some folks, speaking of folks helping out on the channel, who are more biology-focused and can help me make sure we're doing that accurately. I always get a little bit gun-shy of doing episodes, though, outside of physics and space because that's my area. So got to be careful going outside your own area without uh, folks who really know what they're talking about to make sure you're not making mistakes. Dan Lewis asks, are you planning any collaborations with Joe from Answers with Joe? Uh, you regularly referenced, I think you would work well together on a futurism video. I think we did one earlier last year, I want to say around August, the five ways the Earth might be destroyed and what we can do to stop it. Uh, Joe is a good friend and we do talk quite regularly and I'm sure we'll work together more in, in the future. So uh, not, not sure when, we don't have anything planned. These things with the collaboration stream, other channels, those tend to happen fairly quickly. Um, actually, we've got one coming up with uh, Jade from Up and Adam in a couple of... Uh, Actually, we haven't set a time yet, probably a couple of months down the road, but that just got planned a couple of days ago. So it always takes a couple of months for us to make an episode, but um, we tend to plan them kind of, we plan it and then we make it basically. So there's always a uncertainty on those. I don't know, Joe and I haven't planned anything again recently. We probably will do something this year, I'd guess. Um, Jock Cop asks, from my 12-year-old niece, <laughs> if we know that the lack of gravity has adverse effects, we know that rotating sections create gravity, so what's the problem? Why don't we make future ships this way? We almost certainly will. I probably need to speed up with my answers on these so we can get to more of these questions. Um, we almost certainly will make ships with rotating sections unless we find something better or we find out that you really just don't need gravity for the travel. Um, right now, we don't have these because we don't have any interplanetary ships that are manned, so there's no need. And up at the space station, trying to match a no-gravity section with a routine section is a bit of a pain with a small station like that. 
And we don't actually want gravity on the station currently. We have a million places to test gravity down here on Earth. We only have one place we can do experiments uh, in zero gravity, and that's on the uh, space station. So right now it doesn't really behoove us to build a section like that. However, I would guess that whatever places the ISS or upgrades the ISS will likely include a spinning section, either lunar or Martian gravity, and I would expect it to be the norm for spaceships. Um, Joseph asked, do you think reigniting the core of Mars would be a viable method of terraforming? No, no I don't. Um, it does not take that much power to create a ring around a planet that will generate a magnetic sphere. Um, you can just do a spinning ring that's not high tech. It's a spinning ring is with electricity through it will give you a big magnetic sphere. Um, trying to dig down into Mars and blow up the core to get it spinning again is not really the best approach for something like that. You know, at that point, you're basically talking about rebuilding the entire planet, and you'd have to maintain that too. So it would be just easier to build and maintain a ring than to build and maintain core rotation in Mars. Um, Fringlix asks, is there enough material for an episode on Omega-engineered science experiments, e.g. circumstellar particle colliders? We could probably do an episode that covered a lot of the smaller ones, but I don't know that we could really do something that was specifically, uh, say, very large super colliders. Although maybe we could. There's certainly a lot of videos that I'll focus on just one. Um, you could do a particle collider around the sun. You could do one around the solar system. I think I once saw somebody suggest that you could do one around uh, the entire galaxy. And in fact, I think that was the part of the plot of uh, a Stephen Baxter novel from the Zeely sequence. Um, we could potentially do an episode that was more of a survey of various uh, non-habitat-based megastructures. That actually does sound like a fun idea. Maybe we'll think about that one. Uh, Grido Belidi asks, serious question, how will humanity deal with stagnating birth rates in the future? Will we ever be able to populate another gravity well, or will our population remain the same? We don't have stagnating birth rates. This is a misconception. Um, in fact, even most developed nations do not have uh, declining birth rates. Uh, what we have is a mixture of science, making it much harder to get pregnant accidentally, and people generally wanting to live longer before they have kids. Um, that can obviously be a bit of a controversial subject, but there is um, the discussion on that topic is thus far, in my opinion at least, not very logical, rational, evidence-based. Obviously, birth rates have declined from what they used to be. No one can debate that, but to me the reasons are simply that we have less accidental births. So the analogy that we would just keep having a declining birth rate as we got uh, more prosperous has never struck me as very sound reasoning. You know, correlation is not equal causation. Were that the case, though, you do have a lot of other options on the table. And if you do get something like life extension, it kind of breaks the entire mode, especially if people can keep having kids, and there's no real reason why they could not. Um, you can always grow them in a tank if you have to. Um, so I really do not see that as a threat. Um, if people are living a lot longer, they can wait a lot longer to have kids, and most people would not have any problem having eight or nine kids comfortably over a millennia, and if none of them are dying of old age, your population goes up. So obviously a concern for a lot of industrialized nations right now that do have declining uh, population growth, or even in some cases negative growth, though there's not very many of those that maintain that. Often you'll see one year that it was negative, and that's what people focus on rather than the rest of the decade where it was slightly positive. Uh, Next question, do cryo chambers work? Uh, if I freeze my 18-year-old self for 100 years, will I wake up in 2019, sorry, 2119 as a healthy, fully functioning 18-year-old? Um, if I freeze you, you are dead, the, um, but you are fairly static, minus the damage that's done to you by having been frozen. 
that's potentially repayable. The idea is that it's kind of like saving somebody in a lossless state. You can potentially repay them afterwards or come close enough that it makes no difference until you can actually undo that process, which almost certainly requires nanotechnology and what we need for life extension. Um, it does not work. But the concept of cryo right now is not to, uh, to freeze someone and wake them up. It's to freeze them in a state where they could be repaired once that technology is available. So in that respect, I'd say, I mean, if you feel like getting frozen, I've, I've considered it and probably will just out of curiosity for it. Um, whether it's a burial or uh, I get woken up in a century or two, it wouldn't make much of a difference to me, I think. Um, the real Byleth asks, what is the future technology you are personally looking forward the most to? Fusion or um, automated manufacturer? Not necessarily full-blown artificial intelligence at the human level, but um, automated um Automated, automated software that can do things like drive a car safely or you know run a factory without a lot of human oversight. That or fusion both gives you either an infinite amount of energy, so to speak, or um, an infinite amount of man manpower to build stuff. Either one of those really changes the dynamics and lets us start pushing outward uh, to much higher. Well, I mean, just across the board, it improves everything. Standard of living, uh, I would imagine stress and happiness levels, and uh, you know, the, it helps the environment to say the least. And that does open the, the gateway to space. Either one of those just makes it so much easier to do all the space expansion we discuss. Uh, Otis asks, does gravity waves act more like a pulse or a pressure wave like a gust of wind, or is it more relatable to the surface tension of water like a sulfur skimming along the surface? Um, you know, I'm not actually certain that either of those is a really good analogy or what you're asking for there, but um, we don't have enough data on gravity waves yet to really be discussing them too accurately anyway, so I'm going to have to punt on that question, sorry. Um, Gup Gup asks, similar to the concept of suicide pack technology, do you think there are technologies which will virtually ensure that a civilization does not wipe itself out? So. The reverse case. A suicide pack technology is one that kind of sneaks up on you that you would definitely use and would kill you even though you weren't expecting to. Or were expecting to but couldn't quite bring yourselves not to use or couldn't stop it from happening. Uh, for instance, if somebody could make antimatter in their basement without anyone being able to catch them doing it, that's kind of a suicide pack technology because someone's a lunatic who's going to build enough to kill everybody as well. Um, Ones that would prevent it, I'd say space travel would be really the, the biggest technology that would ensure survival. When you're dealing with distances at that scale, it makes it virtually impossible for any natural catastrophe or even an artificial intelligence-based one to really get everybody. So I would say that the best way to ensure a species doesn't die off is to practice the policy that we've always used in evolution, which is basically make yourself more survivable in your environment and spread out to other environments uh, where you can adapt to them. That's a very proven survival method. So that would be the one I'd say is probably the best one for us to pursue. And technologies that help on either of those fronts would uh, basically help with that process. Um, Jeremy asks, does emotion theories claim that 3D plank length? I'm going to have to bypass that one. We'll just skip to the next one. Um, Dale asks, do you think that there may be some development developmental technologies that are being ignored since they seem too fantastical? I would actually say that to a degree, fusion is kind of like that right now, just because people have kind of gotten this 20 years mindset, as we discussed earlier, and the same for life extension. People treat that one like it's a fountain of youth potion, so it must be, must be snake oil. 
Um, we do actually have a fair number of examples like that where it's people are just disinclined to believe in them. We've been burned a few too many times, and so they don't really get the serious funding, attention, and uh, resources they need. Um, Eric asks, "What do you expect? What do you expect the effect of deep fakes and generalized ability to create artificial but photorealistic fake models of people will be?" I'm not familiar with the term deep fakes, but I w I'm going to guess here that what you mean is uh, what would be the effect of being able to model people accurately enough that they would, um, that you could do a model of them that people could not tell the difference. Basically something that was uh, Turing compliant as it were, uh, not so much that you couldn't tell it was a machine or a robot, but that you couldn't tell it was a specific person. Um, we actually get a great example of that in, I, I know I suggest this book to people a lot, Revelation Space by Alistair Reynolds. He's got something called a beta emulation. And a lot of people use them as an assistant, but uh, something like that can kind of replace you if something should happen to you, same as a mind upload. And that's a great example of how we, we really can't tell, you know, how good does a copy need to be, because it depends on what your purpose is. If you need a copy of you that's supposed to kind of fulfill your duties in life that you would be worried about going away if you died or went on a long trip, then it only needs to be that good of a copy. And, and for a lot of people, that's going to be good enough, something that could raise their kids to some degree if they died, for instance. So in that regard, that would be one of those things where I'd expect you'd see a lot of people using that legitimately. And I think you'd obviously have a lot of concerns about identity theft or fraud for something like that too. I hope that was kind of where you were aiming with that question. Uh, Trey asks, can you start a subscribe star channel for those of us who have left Patreon? Um, I've been trying to avoid the Patreon controversy a little bit. I'll leave it to others to discuss that matter. But uh, at the moment, I'm not starting a subscribe star account. I've considered it. I might in a month or two, but this is a relatively new service. And right now, it's basically getting, uh, it used to get rather negative reviews. Um, and in the last couple of months, it only has very positive reviews. And um, certainly, I'd love to increase the ways that people can donate to the channel. Um, but um, I want to be absolutely sure any place where people are putting their personal information and money at is very solid in terms of its user interface, safety, security, privacy, things like that. Um, in the meantime, for those of you who specifically don't want to use Patreon or PayPal, on our website, on the donate link, you can actually just mail checks into me. And the address there, by the way, I collect postcodes. So if you feel like sending a postcard, my uh, PO box there on the website, um, is the only place you can send those, and I'm always glad for those. Actually, I got a few of the newer ones up there, so I don't know why I just like postcards. <laughs> so, next question If you could stick your real brain into a robot body and then destroy and copy every single neuron in your brain, say slowly, so slowly, you would eventually, your brain was, oh, let me phrase this. Um, if you could copy neurons into an artificial state in your body and basically replace them with something mechanical and do it gradually, uh, would you still be you? That's a ship of Theseus argument with the slight caveat that in this case you're rebuilding the ship from being wooden to being plastic or metal. Um, and then it always comes down to how much of you is you. This gradual replacement concept um, has a lot of appeal to people. I think a lot of folks feel that the gradual replacement option where you're just slowly replacing one neuron at a time uh, is somehow more likely to preserve identity than if we just did it instantaneously, where we just replaced every single one at once. So I think a lot of people would go that way. From a philosophical standpoint, though, I'm not really sure what the difference in replacing them one at a time over a decade versus uh, um, all in one millisecond really is. They've still been replaced with something new. 
does overhauling a ship over the course of a year make it different than if I do it in one second? And that's an arguable point. From a practical standpoint, though, I would definitely want to replace them one at a time simply because if something's going wrong, you know, there's a lot more time to fix it, notice it, and adapt to it as we slowly change things out. I suspect most folks would gradually replace them. Then when they got to like half their brain was at that level of being replaced, they'd probably just say, eh, and replace the vest. Uh, <clears throat> um, I'm getting behind on the question. Sorry about that. Bruno asks, if we build a self-replicating spaceship and left them alone for millions of years, would they eventually undergo evolution like organic creatures? By default, yes. Anytime you have something that self-replicates off a pattern, you would have mutations of that pattern, and that mutation is going to follow that more survivability, more likely reproduce approach. There are a lot of ways you can make it so they don't mutate much, though. Um, check some, for instance, one of the ways we, we make sure data doesn't flip over here. Uh, you can also use several different contributors, you know, like 20 bots have to get together, compare all the data, and go with the uh, the agreed-on majority to avoid a, a, a copy error, and then that's what they produce. Our DNA is not actually meant, or at least it is not used for the purpose of being a very accurate copy. It is a very accurate copy, to be fair, but there's no biological incentive to no mutation. So um, we are pretty high mutation rate as a result of that. We could build something that mutated way less, uh, potentially that it was less likely to mutate over the course of the entire universe, even one time, uh, than not. And uh, it all depends on how safe you want to be with your uh, replication. Um, but uh, by default, they would mutate. Have you ever considered putting together a making of episode as small? Um, Yes, we have, and in fact, the the two subscriber specials, the um, one hundred thousand subscriber and two hundred fifty thousand subscriber special, are actually all making of episodes to some degree. The problem is that I tend to feel like people would find it, or most of the audience would not find it all that interesting to put one of those together and watch that, and it does take just as much time as another episode. So, I always want to give people a look behind the scenes if they want it, but I usually say if you really want to know what's going on behind the scenes, join the production team, and you'll get to find out the uh, the hard ways of war. Um, question, are there any theoretical technologies which would allow us to convert cosmic radiation into electrical energy to fuel shield spacecraft? Ambient radiation is almost always going to be a bit of a loser for trying to create heat off of. Um, there are certainly levels of radiation out there that would not be running into a specific thermodynamic limitation on that. You can't generate energy in a uh, in a bathtub that's at lukewarm temperature already. It's it's there's no energy to be processed out of that. Um, no temperature difference uh, with the cosmic microwave background radiation specifically the the CMB that is spread more or less evenly all over the universe. Even the hot spots and cold spots vary by millikelvin from each other. So you're not really going to be able to generate power off something like that. Um, except possibly in the long-term sense of letting it fall into a very, very large black holes, which would slowly radiate outwards when the universe is even cooler. Um, so I can't really see that being an option. Zane asks, do you think would there be a benefit to uplifting an unextincted species? So uplifting, say, a cat or a dog or a, um, a chimpanzee. We'll look at that a little bit in, we have an episode called The Future of Pets in early April. Uh, that's National Pet Day that it's on. And we do talk about that a little bit more there, so I'll save that mostly for then. But uh, 
I think there would be a benefit to making all pets a little bit smaller. I'm not sure that we would want them to be as smart as us. That has a lot of ramifications ethically and uh, practically that you might want to avoid. Mike asks, in your view, what will be the future personal device? Uh, what will the future personal device be like as a phone, camera, wallets, keys, etc. converge together? Where would we go after that? Um, I would tend to guess we wouldn't go anywhere after that. You either are going to have something that's implanted into you, that's kind of interfaced in part of you that handles all that stuff, or you're going to not want to do that and have a device you carry around, and that device is presumably going to have to be big enough for you to manipulate with your hands. So you wouldn't want to have it microsized more than than like a phone currently is. Um, but you could have something that was smaller that was just the computer that did that, and then you you were maybe comfortable with some kind of uh, interface that was allowing you to talk to it but wasn't too intrusive into your head, so you could type or speak to it. So that's a possibility. Um, you still need a way to display that, so possibly glasses plus a device that was voice activated. Um, but I think that's just going to keep converging towards that or implantation. Um, Thank you, Bella. Can you comment on Gateway's Von Braun plans? I have to be a little bit careful talking about that because uh, for those who don't know, I'm kind of attached to them. They send me a lot of the emails discussing when they were getting ready for this. I know this just came out for everybody else in the last few weeks, but I've been familiar with it for a couple months now. We've had an email chain going for it. The Von Braun is a classic space uh, station design. I would love to see one get built, and it's a lot more modest than the Gateway's plans, which is a lot more modest than a lot of stuff we discuss here. I always like the idea of building one of these things. When, where, and how the funding will happen is another story, and I don't want to get too into the details discussing anybody's specific plan, yay or nay. Um, thank you, Harry and George and Brick, and also Harry again. Those are um, super chat donations without questions attached to them. Um, Harry asks, where would one find the X, Y, and Z axis of the nearest 100 stars? Um, I think Space Engine has them, and I, Google Sky, if we're still around, has them, but you can look those up on like Wikipedia. Um, try searching a uh, list of the nearest 100 stars. I know there's a Wikipedia page that actually has the, the closest stars to Earth. Um, and I would actually bet somebody would be very familiar with how to do that in our audience right now might want to paste that into the chat or the comments at the end if they know a better source. I don't usually look those up too often unless I want to specifically check the time from like going to Epsilon Iridani from the solar system and then on to, uh, say, Delta Pavonis, in which case I just do the trigonometry at the same time. <clears throat> um, Devin asks, why not use Raced Rock to have a moon-tide magnets? I'm sorry, I'm Devin, I'm not really clear what you're asking there. Um, Jeff, as Jeff says, thank you for your hard work to make this the most entertaining channel, and Star Badass, I've heard of the theory that our system is actually a binary and that our sun has a hidden red dwarf or brown dwarf twin out there. Uh, do you agree this is possible? Red dwarf, no, we would see that by now. Brown dwarf, I don't know if we can actually rule that one out just yet. Um, we did get a, I can't know the exact distance, but I think we ruled out any Jupiters within, uh, within a thousand AU of us and a brown dwarf would be bigger. Um, we will know the answer to that question for sure uh, inside the next 10 years or so though. We just have to get better at mapping out those really big objects. Now, if things are more Earth-sized, we might find them all over the outer solar system. Uh, certainly, a lot of plutonoids or very small objects might be out there. Probably not a binary, though. It's, we just can't rule it out completely yet, I think. Ian asks, Hey, Isaac, what are some other careers in this field would you suggest for someone who is a dummy, non-doctorate level, but still makes a decent living and contributes to search for life? Hmm, I don't know if there's a lot of professions for actual like SETI work out there. Um, 
I, uh, what I do, of course, uh, making videos, explaining things to people, I love doing this. I mean, it's not technically my day job, but it takes more of my time up than my day job these days. Um, that might be one way to go. Um, I don't know. Let me think on that one. It's a good question, though, because um, I know a lot of us would really like to get more involved in the futurism stuff, and, and it really wouldn't seem like something you could make much of a career out of uh, present company excluded. And, you know, there's uh, obviously a niche for talking about it, but we'd like to see more people doing it. And in a lot of this case, you'd have to pick a specific project that you wanted to be involved in for the future, or something like Sense, for instance, or the Gateway Project we mentioned earlier, and just make it go something like that. You know, go get a job at SpaceX or Google, for instance. Um, John asks, in a world where algorithms, automation, and AI are better at any job than humans, what would be the economic value of humans? And if you're reading this, you're probably at the five-minute mark. Okay, that's from Sindri. He's reminding us the show will end shortly. Um... That's always a problem. Uh, when we're talking about the future of pets as an episode in April, there's always the joke that uh, in the future, humans might be the pets of some you know, massively improved or augmented hum um, you know, humans or uh, AI that uh, really didn't need us or didn't need us that much. Um, you know, dogs and cats are still quite useful to us, but they are clearly not uh, you know, our equals and partners as much as you know, we would like to be for anything that might replace us. Um, I think, though, that um, that is always a question with AI. If you make something that's just smarter across the board, whether it's a post-human or an artificial intelligence, what does that leave for us? And for those folks who don't want to become such things themselves, if that option's even on the table, um, are they going to want to stick around for that or do they want to go somewhere else? Um, I would not want to be someone's pet. Their friend, their junior partner I might be okay with, but not their pet. You know, And um, I don't think many people would feel happy about that. And so there was always a question of whether or not that sort of thing is inevitable. A lot of people feel that it is. Um, and if so, how long would it take for it to be inevitable? And there's no easy answer for something like that, not that I'm familiar with. Um, in terms of technology advancing, how do you stop something like that without, uh, and, and do you even want to? You know, always one being selfish by saying that we're not going to let ourselves be replaced. Um, I would still rather not be replaced, though. So. Um, it's just not a question we can answer yet. We're going to be watching it very carefully, though, because it's not just a concern for science fiction anymore. These have become real concerns the modern times, and we have to start looking at those. We have to start looking at you know, what do we do with people when we put them out of work for a job they've always done, and we don't have anything to replace it with at all either. These are not easy to solve issues, but they are not issues for just novels anymore. They are in front of us today. So hopefully, you know, with so many more minds looking at it in a serious way, we'll come up with some better solutions. All right, we'll take uh, two more questions and then we'll go ahead and cut out. Rick Miller asks, since so much of our personality and intelligence is related to failures of our body and brain, do you think it would even be possible to maintain our identity if uploaded into a computerized body? It depends on whether or not you're emulating it. When we say substrate, uh, specifically substrate, what we mean is not, um, let's say something improved. It's just the same basic design, only it's being emulated by a different core material. If you're perfectly emulating a human mind and body in a digital simulation, then buying some factor we can't anticipate, uh, that should be, you know, you for all practical purposes, same behavior. However, if you're not doing the emulation well enough, or if you're leaving room for variation, that you'd start having a lot of changes. You know, theoretically, my logo should look the same on uh, on on the screen, on the wall, on my mug, um, my mug. Um, but uh, the substrate that's printed on makes a big difference. And um, 
that should be the case for almost anything we try to do. We start messing around with things like we make you so you think 10% faster. That's going to have a huge impact on your personality if we just do it straight out. If we upload you to something, that would have a huge impact on your personality if you became aware that you uploaded even if it was a perfect emulation. Um, so I don't think we actually, we technically can make a copy. I mean, it should be possible to make a perfect copy as a war. The effort involved for that might be uh, unpractical and uh, might take a lot of time to get up that level. So I think a lot of early emulations would have to uh, really be watched very carefully for major personality changes or psychosis. Um, Jap asks, what are your thoughts on deflecting a CME by harvesting it so it splits or is shunted away from Earth? Coronal mass ejections aren't really huge threats to Earth, um, even with our high-tech infrastructure. But you should be able to split something like that magnetically, yeah. I mean, you could put something at the Lagrange point of Earth and the Sun that was just a big magnetic field that kind of dispersed anything that was coming our way. Or you could put it close to the Sun and into a lagite orbit, combination with statite and a normal orbit that we've talked about before, where it just kind of stay between us and the Sun, deflect stuff like that away. Uh, and of course, you have the solar shield option that we might want to make use of in, in for concerns like global warming or climatic change, which become more of a concern when you start having things like fusion massively pumping out lots of energy or if you're importing a lot with uh, power satellites. So that is definitely a manageable problem, but I would tend to think deflecting it away from us would be the best approach, and you could do that magnetically. Last question from Salast, uh, Salacost. Thank you, Salacost. Minor question. Do you think a Martian year one should start on the year of Mars one's arrival or the year of the first human step on Mars? Um, pragmatism, I would want to start on January 1st, although actually I'd like January 1st to be the, uh, the winter solstice just because I've always felt like it should be the solstice that changes over the official year. Um, but uh, I generally don't think if you're starting a new calendar, adopt the previous one's startup system or you're going to have a lot of confusion. Now, mind you, there's more days in the Martian year than there are in the Earth year, so you're going to have that completely twist over. But I think if I was going to do a, a year one from the moment somebody did something specific, I would say it's when a, a, a boot hit the ground, when someone actually steps onto Mars. So we have to do another episode on Mars sometime soon. Uh, anyway, we are going to go ahead and close out here. As we mentioned before, we do have the website up as well as the new Discord server um, voice chat that we'll be going to in about... Well, about 30 minutes. And uh, if you want to join us over there, we're going to have instructions again on what to do there. But I hope you'll take a look at the website first. And uh, then again, remember this Thursday, our episode will be Secret Aliens. And the week after that, it will be Hitchhiking the Galaxy, which is a fun one. And I hope we'll see you all there. And we will be doing our next live monthly live stream on March 31st, Time to be Determined. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we will see you on Thursday. So that's it for our live stream. But we're not quite done for the day as we'll be heading over to the SFIA Discord server for some voice chat. We will be taking a quick break so I can catch my breath, and starting up there at the bottom of the hour, 6.30 Eastern, and depending on when the livestream ends, probably a little after 6, you can spend the downtime checking out the SFIA website, IsaacArthur.net, which we've just finished upgrading. As with the original website, you can see all the videos there, as well as find new ways to donate or help out the channel, including buying SFIA merchandise, but we've also added some new features like our forums, where you can chat with the rest of the SFIA community, a list of books we recommend on the channel and links to them, and an about page where you can get to know a lot of the folks behind the scenes here at SFIA. 
as well as links to all our social media platforms and the audio-only versions of the episodes available for free download at SoundCloud and on iTunes. Needless to say, this is just the first wave of upgrades, and we'll be adding as time goes on, and this is the grand opening so there may be a bug or two. So check out the website and then come on over to Discord to join us for some more Q&A, and please do remember to enable push to talk, and since there's likely to be a lot of folks in there, please make sure to keep any questions concise and